This podcast is proudly supported by Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. Maybe it's time you called Red Energy on 131 806. And Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. I just remember so many incidents, and I've seen it happen to other women journos in the AFL industry. It actually brought back things I had completely forgotten that had happened to me when I was made chief footy rider of the age. Deeply personal, hurtful things. Can't we take the powerful out? Like a good journalist is someone who chases stories, breaks news, acts ethically, wins awards and shines light in dark corners. But he seems to infer, Aaron Patrick, that when a woman does this, she is powerful and then suggesting it's a bad thing. And the second word I and this is crusade. That just really sticks in my core. 15 days. Have you come across it? Haven't. It's a Welsh farmhouse murder mystery. Now, Whoa. have I got you in? You've, got, got, me, you in? you've got me at the Welsh. Good call or bad call? <laughs> to borrow a line from a certain TV show, bad call, destructive call, ridiculous call. Why did they do a call? Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin. everyone and welcome to Don't Shoot the Messenger. I'm Corrie Perkin. This is episode 167 of our little podcast and I'm here hoppity hop hop hop. She's hopped into the studio with her bunny ears on Caroline Wilson, dear friend, award-winning journalist and egg giver, I believe. A few eggs at your place on the weekend, Cara? Well, I think they were at everyone's house. I'm in a bit of a post-Easter fug. <laughs> I noticed that when you couldn't get, oh, work your earphones. I couldn't get my earphones on. Oh, no, it's just, it's a busy time, isn't it? And I always try and pretend I'm on holidays when really I'm working and I try and do a lot of different things, but lots of food was eaten, lots of beautiful walks, lots of beautiful swims. I mean, it was a stunning Easter, wasn't it? So, Cara, I was, in a lot. I was thinking on the weekend, what is it about Easter? How did how did it come about that Christ is crucified on the cross? A couple of days later, there's the resurrection on Sunday, and, and yep. here we are in the 21st century with a bunny delivering eggs. When bunnies actually don't even have eggs, I know that for a fact. They don't no. have children via eggs. Do they, Jane? No. no, there's a lot of chocolate chickens and roosters. Well, not roosters, obviously. Well, there are but actually. But I know it's supposed roosters. to be the new life thing. But what? When did that happen? Do you know the story of Easter and Easter Bunny and chocolate? I actually embarrassingly don't. I do think it's a European tradition. Oh, I definitely know that. Blame it on the Finnish, like no, we do with no, Saint no. Nick. I think I think it's more. I thought it was actually more, um, I would have said more United Kingdom, Great Britain, but I'll come back to you on that. No doubt one of our wonderful um, friends of the podcast will get in touch and tell us. Does it strike you as wacky, though? My mother, who was quite religious, Church of England, High Church of England, as she used to remind me, would say, you must never say Happy Easter before or during Good Friday. Oh, I remember when I hosted the 3AW Afternoon program and I, I broadcast once on Good Friday and we were off to Port Ferry on a holiday that night and I was in a really good mood and I kept every time, every caller who rung up, I'd say, say, happy Good Friday. And finally, one of the producers, Lisa, had to say in my ear, will you stop saying happy Good Friday? <laughs> Miss um, Jane's got a hand up. She's got a story for us. According to Time.com, the exact origins of the Easter Bunny are clouded in mystery. One theory is that the symbol of the rabbit stems from pagan tradition, specifically the festival of Oestra, a goddess of fertility whose animal symbol was a bunny. 
There Clearly, you go. that's where that's where Hugh Hefner got it from. Yeah, those pagans. That something would have happened around Stonehenge. And those Playboy or bunnies. Oh, <laughs> no, anyway. And, and then you bring introduce the bilby, which was a very random oh, sort look, of introduction a few years so, ago. No wonder the children are all so confused. Anyway, look, I. Uh, we, we would love to hear from you, listeners, if you have any commentary about Easter and the origins of. Thank you, Jane, uh, for that nice little history lesson. And also thank you to our show sponsors, Red Energy. Yay! Most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. That's Red Energy. And we'll be opening up the cocktail cabinet later on with Miles from Prince Wine Store. Thank you, Prince Wine Store, for being our wonderful sponsors of the podcast as well. And, Caro, we're off to the movies. We are. We're going to, and we got, we're going to host all of you, and we really hope you can join us at the Como Cinema to watch an exclusive preview screening of The United States versus Billie Holiday. It's on the 22nd of April at 5.30 for a 6 o'clock start. Um, that's a Thursday night, Como Centre in South Yarra. You'll have a glass of wine with us before the film if you'd like to join us and a bit of a chat. And if you want to hang around afterwards, we'd love to have another drink with you at the bar then. Or so, several. Or, or several. So we've already sold a few tickets, but there are still some remaining. Details on how to book in the show notes or, of course, just get in touch with Miss Jane feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au. So I really hope you can join us. Caro, as usual, we have a full agenda. But first of all, let's go to our mailbag, our listener feedback. And any apologies before we begin? Anything that you needed to apologise for? Oh, do I? I don't think so. I (laughs) I, I don't think I did anything wrong last week. I do have to thank you because um, we're about to talk to Miles via the cocktail cabinet and we did a beautiful sparkling wine a few weeks ago. And I got home from my early morning walk the other day and there was a bottle of it on my dining room table. I'm sorry I didn't leave a note, but at the time I was racing out of the house, I couldn't find a pen. But I, I figured you'd work out who had left mm. you a bottle of the tiger. The Tigers are not winners this week, but they did beat your Hawks last week. Anyway, no, so thank you for that. I really um, enjoyed um, our friend Mindy Williams' email, Corrie, um, regarding your grumpy at that rather irritating and, well, more than irritating, Andrew Lamming. Um, Mindy makes a point as a long-time listener but first-time correspondent. The segment moved her to write. She completely agrees with you, Corrie, on Andrew Lamming, or is it Lemming? The only thing she wanted to add is that she reads on Instagram. Um, well, she read this on Instagram. Why is it that in this country that upskirting barely causes a stir in government ranks but major whistleblowing is a crime? Mm. Good point, Melinda. Good point, Melinda. Julie Rust, Caro. Hi, Caro and Corrie, I'm in Melbourne for Easter from Sydney and just home from the G after seeing my beloved Swannies beat Richmond. There's an exclamation mark after that, Caro. Thank you, Melbourne, for the lovely weather, the great restaurants and shopping and friendly locals. I hate the Sydney-Melbourne rivalry. They're both great cities. Julie, I could not agree more on that one. And I love- Julie continues, we met some Sorry. lovely and gracious Richmond supporters today. And I'm sure your team will be there when it matters. Visited my bookshop in Hawksburn too, Corrie. All in all, a wonderful weekend. Love the podcast. Thanks, ladies. Oh, Julie, I'm sorry I wasn't there on the weekend. Um, Bit of babysitting with the kids over Easter. But um, thank you very much for visiting and to all our potties who come into the shop regularly. I can't, I now actually, there are so many of you, I can't name you all, but you know who you are. And I'm incredibly grateful and love seeing you. Gawley Amanda via Instagram said, Hi, Carol and Corrie, love your podcast. Just one thing in this latest one. 
we Canberrans would prefer if you did not use, quote, Canberra when you are talking about Parliament, e.g. Canberra is the problem. The two are not interchangeable and those of us who live in this beautiful capital appreciate them not being conflated. Cheers. Um, Amanda was one of a couple of potties who mentioned that to us. Of course, we were saying, you know, terrible boys behaving badly in Canberra. What we should be saying, of course, is in Parliament House. So I absolutely acknowledge that, Amanda. Yeah, well, that's true. But I mean, I think um, generally and culturally, we have always spoken of federal parliament in Canberra as one. I mean, Canberra, when you hear in Canberra today, you don't usually think it's about the National Gallery or about um, one of the beautiful walks or about Lake Burley Griffin. You tend to think it's actually about parliament. You do tend to. But so you're right. But there, there was some one. And, you know, I'm, I'm so happy that um, Greater Western Sydney are playing four games a year in Canberra. I think they should be playing more. Footy dropped the ball in Canberra many years ago and um, the NRL stole it, really. And now we're getting inroads back into Canberra and me as an AFL fan and I think that's absolutely brilliant and Canberra footy fans and Monica Oval have been a fabulous addition to the footy landscape. Yes well we take that on board Amanda and we'll try to be good and say Parliament House but if we do say Canberra now and then which we could possibly in this episode we apologise in advance. Helen Gibbons via email said I loved Made in Italy and watched it twice. This is Cara, my recommendation last week for screen on um, Stan. The first time I was reading the subtitles and the second time absorbing the wonderful images, the fashions, the detail of living in Milan in the 70s. Same genre as Devil Wears Prada and Emily in Paris, but a much more authentic feeling. I agree with that one too. Um, Caro, let's move on to the the Australian political capital. I'm now really nervous about it. (laughs) Let's move to Canberra, but let's move to Parliament House. There was extraordinary fallout last week following Aaron Patricks, um, a journalist with the uh, Fin Review, his story last week on News Corp's political editor, Samantha Maiden. And I just wondered um, what you thought of this. The headline on the story was PM caught in crusade of women journos. And then the subheading was anger at the government over the abuse of women is being led by a powerful group of female journalists. So um, it's an interesting story. It particularly focuses on Sam Maiden, who became the confidant of Brittany Higgins and with Lisa Wilkinson of The Project broke the story and has broken numerous others relating to bad behaviour at Parliament House. And who went to school with the alleged... Rape victim of Christian of Christian Porter. Correct, um, and these these stories of that she, I mean she's been constantly breaking them. And if she doesn't end up at the end of the year winning a few awards, I will eat my reporter's hat. But the story has incurred the wrath of journalists, commentators, political. This is Aaron's story, um, political and observers, and of course feminists around the country. And meanwhile, Sam Maiden, of course, has maintained a dignified silence on this, and she's just allowing her work to do uh, the talking, which is um, reminds me of someone opposite me. Actually, when the going gets tough, you Corrie, just get on is, with the work. It's backfired. What do you spe- reckon? It's backfired spectacularly on Aaron Patrick and the Fin Review. And I must it's- say. He was, he was, Aaron Patrick was encouraged by his editor, an old editor of mine at The Australian, Michael Stutchbury, who is now editor of The Finn Review. So it's two blokes. His name's on men, the article, Corrie. <laughs> two and men working the room. I mean, you know, it starts out not so badly, the article, making the point. It sort of breaks the story that I wasn't aware that Samantha Maiden was one of the parties 
the Prime Minister Scott Morrison was referring to when he alleged an incident that happened at Sky News to the Sky News journalist in that in a bath. He said it happened in a toilet, didn't he, between two journos and or two staff members and there'd been a complaint. In fact, the complaint had allegedly been made against Samantha Maiden and she was sitting in the press conference when he made this allegation and sat there and didn't belie any sort of emotion that she might have been aware of this. Of course, it was a small incident, I think, um, Human Resources spoke to both parties and it went away and he, the Prime Minister had completely got his information wrong. But it made it even more juicy, really, that the person he was sort of referring to was in fact Samantha Maiden, who has made his life a complete misery lately because of her incredible work and um, the fact that she just keeps breaking these stories that have been so damaging to the Morrison government. But the and, then bon- what, and then what an excuse for Aaron Patrick to have a crack at um, uh, all the great women journalists who are doing all this work, regardless of their gender. They're journalists. Threw them are- all in. Oh, Louise Milligan, Lee Sales, um, Catherine Murphy. But the interesting thing was, was that, you know, and I, it was so familiar to me, you know, this um, basically calling to account a woman journalist and using words like, you know, not a team player, spiky difficult, dredging up over her school situation and mentioning the fact that her mother could barely afford to pay, single mother could barely afford to uh, afford to pay the fees at St Peter's in South Australia. I mean, just, in, and you know, was she expelled or was, she was mean to the headmaster? I mean, it was just, I thought it was bullying of the highest order and a no-win situation for them. Why they would do it in this environment is just beyond me. Why and play the man in this case, the woman, and not the not the game itself, I, the big picture? I mean, it did, it did. He did talk to um, her former editor at the Daily Telegraph, who was spoke very, you know, spoke wonderfully of her. Did not, you know, in any way gild the lily about what a brilliant journalist she is. In fairness, but some of that personal stuff so reminded me. I just remember so many incidents, and I've seen it happen to other women journos in the AFL industry. But, you know, it actually brought back things I had completely forgotten that had happened to me when I was made chief footy writer of the age. You know, one good friend, senior journo saying to me, they should never have given you the title, you know, good luck, but that was a bridge too far, giving you the title. So deeply personal, hurtful things. And um, so many comments that were made when, when I got that job and when things went wrong, just absolutely horrific. And what is this is so much worse because it's an article dredging up her private life and her background. Uh, there are two. There are two horrifying. words. There are two words in these headlines, Caro, that really piss me off. One is um, powerful. So he talks about the um, the is being led by a, pow- a powerful group of female journalists. So we can imagine what he's talking about there is, of course, Laura Tingle, um, uh, Sam Maiden, of course, Karen Middleton, um, Catherine Murphy of The Guardian. There's a whole swag of them. Um, and then those who, who comment on politics like Lee Sales, Fran Kelly, so on and so forth, Lisa Wilkinson. But what is it about this word powerful? Surely, I mean, why does it, would they call if it was a group of men? Would they be writing this story? I suppose good, we have written articles about boys' clubs and powerful but a good, men. A good, I mean, I've done that. So, but I, why, I don't, why can't we take the powerful out? Like a good journalist is someone who chases stories, breaks news, acts ethically, wins awards, and shines light in dark corners. But he seems to infer, Aaron Patrick, that when a woman does this. She is powerful and then suggesting that's a bad thing. And the second word I hate in this is crusade. 
that just really sticks in my craw because this is not a crusade by Australia's female journalists working at Parliament House. It is not a crusade. Events of the past month have revealed a toxic work culture, a government that has tried to bury an alleged rape, a PM who appears to have difficulty empathising and understanding the true mean of equal rights and justice. These matters are not crusades by feminists. They're matters for the government. They're matters for the... They affect all Australians. I mean, if you don't think you're being affected by this, look at the vaccination rollout. What's happening there? The government's been so preoccupied for the last six and eight weeks about all of this Brittany Higgins stuff that it's taken, Christian Porter and everything else. Like, it's just... It is just such a, a... uh, it's such a bad tone to say it's a crusade. I mean, there are male journalists who are in arms writing about this, up in arms writing about this yeah, stuff. Yeah, and, well, and campaigning journalism has become a bit of a thing. But I say again, Corrie, to, uh, it is fascinating to me that the Prime Minister pointed his finger at an incident involving Sam Maiden where he was trying to say he was, he'd been looked at for a, you know harassment or bullying or whatever it was, which... As it turned out, it was having a crack at a talking to a younger female journalist who was standing for some committee in Canberra, and she was going for some other journalist. Apparently, according yeah, to the a story, seat, a seat on the um, press press club. But how badly, how bad to be actually mentioning something that is private that he doesn't even. Well, clearly he didn't have his facts right because it wasn't even true. And if it had been true, even just as bad because it was a private issue, and the other woman involved mightn't have wanted it to come out. So that was just a really nasty side of a politician, I reckon we saw, and the article revealed that. But then to go over Samantha Maiden's childhood, her school record, I mean, I just thought that was beyond the pale. Well, Caro, you reap what you sow, because what's happened, of course, over the weekend, a very interesting article by Paul Kelly suggests to me that News Corp, Rupert Murdoch's media organisation in Australia has actually turned against Scott Morrison. Of course, um, Sam Maiden is the political editor for News Corp in Australia. Um, It's really interesting that Paul Kelly now is writing uh, his big comment piece, which is always a must read, whether you agree with him or not. He's a fine journalist and he writes sublimely about politics. But his weekend Australian read basically gives Anthony Albanese on a platter the agenda how to move forward and win the election because you are within QE because the Morrison government is on the nose. Now, that is very telling in so, itself. So you think that News Corp are looking to back Albo? Well, I think this is the start of it, Caro. I think this could be the start of it. As Paul Has Kelly... Has he got the metal to actually... Well, that's what Paul Kelly ...lead Labor into the next election but he campaign? Gives it, but he gives him a whole kind of set of dot points almost in this article. It's very interesting, but it's it's it's, you know... Of course, inevitably, the the attention will shift from this current women's problem, if, if that's what we call it, that the Morrison government has. But it has to move on to the economic agenda quickly. And then he just basically gives Albo the tips on how to do it. It's quite extraordinary, this move. Watch that. But do you think, Caro, um, and you and I have um, been journalists in this town for a long time, and we've watched Rupert Murdoch make and break governments and make and break prime ministers. Do you think that uh, Rupert Murdoch still has the same sort of influence in Australian politics that he had maybe 10 or 20 years ago? Well, certainly not in Victoria because, um, you know, the Herald Sun completely campaigned so strongly against Daniel Andrews in the last election campaign and he won by an almost record result, didn't he? He absolutely swamped the Libs. And that was um, 
a campaign that was run really, really, I mean, that was quite, the Herald Sun campaign for the Libs was extraordinary, I thought. And um, and I thought it was going to be a lot closer than it was because of that. Neil Mitchell was also part of that campaign and he usually has a massive influence. And yet, the you know, the landslide was there for all to see. So very interesting. It is. And I just wonder whether the rise and rise of Facebook and so on and social media, whether there are now so many avenues in which people can explore political their political views, um, hear a particular point of view that suits theirs better, whether in fact Rupert Murdoch will have the same sort of influence. It is interesting. The election will be coming. Everybody's telling us. I'm not sure when, but um, we'll be covering it here, won't we? All of this political talk, I'm exhausted. I need a drink. Well, we'll give it a mention. We won't be, <laughs> I don't know if we'll be covering it. No. We won't be on the bus. Oh, come on. Let's be women crusading. Let's become powerful <laughs> women like the rest of them. Let's have a drink. Drink with Miles Thompson from the Cocktail Cabinet. Jane, stop banging those glasses. Goodness me. It's the best crystal. Stop it, Jane. Stop it. <laughs> She's got her excited, Caro. Um, we are delighted once again to be joined by Miles from the uh, Prince Wine Store. Miles, it's so lovely to have you back with us. And um, can I just say thanks very much for the Domaine Pajot tip from last week, the white wine variety that, of course, Prince very kindly had as a special offer to our messengers, which I'm hoping everybody jumped on board on the website and ordered. Lovely dry wine. Although when I said it reminded me, Caro, of the old Horton's White Burgundy, Miles just stared at me. Looked a bit horrified. (laughs) Well, from my face. (laughs) I can't remind. I don't think Miles would be um, old enough to remember Horton's White Burgundy. I, I know it. I know of it. And we can't call it that anymore anyway, I think it's anyway, infamous enough we? that... Uh... Yeah, or inf- infamous actually means sinister. <laughs> and there's nothing sinister about it. It was actually, delicious. Uh, delicious. It was delicious. But, um, it is good. I went in and had never actually been, embarrassingly, into the Prince Wine store in South Melbourne because I was having lunch next door with a couple of girlfriends last week. And I loved the restaurant Bellotto's, yeah. loved the wine shop, and ended up buying some more of that beautiful Tasmanian Pinot Gris mm. and the so-called cheap and cheerful. But when my daughter was doing slow-cooked lamb for Easter Sunday, she wanted to open some and put it in, the um, Pache, and I said, no, 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 I want to save it. But then it was like, what do you use? I mean, you grab something that's open if it's open, I guess. Yeah. Um, they, well, they say, you know, cook with what you want to drink. So yes, you know, it's about the quality of the ingredients. So if you're going to cook with something good, you know, if you're going to drink something good, you want to cook with that as well. So, I mean, you don't have to put your most expensive, you know, no. champagne or something in no. with your lamp. But yeah, look, if, you know, something that you can have a glass with while you cook is sort of like the, the easy way to know But I, But, but right somewhat choice. reluctantly the other night making, making the ragu for dinner, I had Sam Neill's Pinot Noir that I had bought oh, from paddocks. you last week, two paddocks. And I needed to put a bit of red wine. And there's just a little bit of, oh, no, as you pour, because it's the only one that's open, as you pour the beloved drop into your ragu, which actually the toddlers knocked down really well. They enjoyed mm. it. So they, they probably needed taste. a bit of pacifying after Easter <laughs> and all that chocolate. Well, our friend Jeff Slattery used to, you know, always say that making Coco Van, didn't he, and beef burgundy. He'd get very angry if you used a cheap red. You had to use a good red. You have to use a good red, yeah. Yep. Like, again, like it's like any good ingredient. That's what you're putting in. So what you put in is what you're going to get out. So, so Miles, our brief to you this week was autumn is now well and truly upon us, even though the past weekend of Easter would have perhaps had us thinking otherwise. And uh, Miss Jane actually... 
you and I were having a conversation via email a couple of weeks ago about the spices, the tastes and so on of autumn and how we're all kind of cooking. Suddenly nutmegs and cinnamons and everything are back in the cooking store. Uh, what have you brought in with you? There is a very large bottle of something quite... A very pretty bottle. <laughs> it looks quite um, alcoholic, doesn't it, Caro? That's arrived with Miles, but it's a very pretty bottle. You're right. Yeah, this is uh, a liqueur called La Bielu, which is an apple and chestnut liqueur. Oh, wow. So I was thinking about what you said, and, and it, I mean, it just has all those things. It's got that baked apple and cinnamon spice and Jane I hate to ask you I hate to ask you to be the hostess it's not a um, sexism thing here at all but Janie could you open us open it up please and (laughs) pour us some oh Jane's already off it's particularly apt because we're about to get your recipe for spiced carrot cake that you've also we um, are brought have a piece here which I'll be taking with me looks absolutely beautiful but wow what a color oh Miles it's the color of um sometimes bottles like Caramel toffee. Yeah, it's almost like an Armagnac sort of cognac colour. Sometimes bottles are an accessory in your cocktail cabinet too, aren't they? When there is, it's a very pretty bottle. We have we have people who come in and just buy. I've had I've had a few customers come in who want to stock their shelves with just the pretty bottles. But in spirits, it's fantastic because you know it's a bit conservative with wine still as far as bottles concerned. Everyone sort of still uses pretty standard type bottles. Yep. But you, when you look at spirits, everyone has amazing labels and different shapes and. Well, we really, t- it's really cool. So you get to see some really sort of wild and interesting. We were telling your colleague Tony a few weeks ago, or I was actually dibber-dobbing on Caro, who when we were on our walk around Cornwall, she fell in love with a gin bottle because of its label and, yeah. ca- and carried it around with her for the rest of the trip. Why not? Well, Which we thought was pretty dedicated. It emptied itself pretty quickly, I've got to say. <laughs> got lighter that, and lighter very quickly. That, you can really taste the apple, can't you? Yeah. Okay, it's just goes. wonderful. It's just such – it's one of those – yeah, you know, if, if you sort of want some dessert but a bit too full, that's kind of perfect, you know. You can have a, a drink and dessert in one. But it has all that lovely wow. kind of baked apple spice and cinnamon. And it was actually the first – you talked about it last week. It was the first thing that sort of popped into my head. Oh, it's perfect. It's so – um, It's really so, good. This is great. What time is it? 8.30 or yeah. something. So, so who made it, Miles, and how did it come about? So the, the company's called Vedren. And they're, uh, I don't know if I've said that right, but they're, uh, they're, they're a sort of specialist liqueurs and, and that sort of thing from, from France. So it's from the sort of Rhone region in France, so in that sort of central, central France. Um, yeah, and it's just, uh, so they, I guess they steep, the, steep like the spirit with the, with the apple and the chestnut and spices. And it's just really... It's so fresh, though. You really, you yeah. really, it's like you can, yeah, apple and chestnut. And it together. does, and it doesn't have yeah. that kind of nice, you know, how a good whiskey will have that ni- burn. A nice burning in your mm. throat. It doesn't have that. It's quite clear. It's, very, very smooth. You could almost have this as an aperitif, couldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know what you would eat with it. You might have figs, figs and blue cheese, perhaps, with it. Yeah, that would be good. When we were any um, sort of what, sweet what, cakes, any, any yeah. cakes that are similar to it, it's going to sort of be be good with as well. This could be quite good for afternoon or in scrabble. The morning. Well, my my <coughs> very, in the morning. My very old friend Serena and I were found ourselves travelling through Florence when we were in our twenties, and we had no. We I think we were running out of money. We'd come to the end of our trip. We were li- I was living in London at the time. And because we couldn't afford to really eat much food every morning, we'd put all our um, lira together and we could each afford a, a short macchiato and a glass of amaretto. <laughs> that was what we ate. That was our meal for the day until we could afford dinner. 
So we'd have long macchiatos and short macchiatos and amarettos. The best breakfast lunch, mm. I can tell you. Absolutely. Gets you going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can try that even, in coffee. I don't know. It might, that might it's be re- no, it is, it, this is this is a really beautiful drop. It's so um, it's so evocative of autumn. I, I know that it's kind of like on topic and obvious, but it really is, Miles. It's a beautiful thing to bring in. So tell us about the price and what the go is with this one. So this is, I think, forty dollars or forty two. Um, Good value. It's quite a big bottle. Yeah, that's right. So, and it's only eighteen percent alcohol, so it's not it's not too high. So, you know, it's only a bit, a bit higher than a than a glass of wine. So, it's a relief. You can have a couple if you want. Six quick questions to get through. Still. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, um, yeah. I just again, it's just such a wonderful sort of autumn style drink. But um, yeah. And tell me about um, just while we're on the subject of autumn, and we might discuss this in a week or two anyway. Um, if you're starting to have going to that Sunday lunch, hot Sunday lunch mm. roast or that sort of you know a big meaty lunch that people are starting to turn their thoughts toward because the weather is getting cooler, do you have a favourite wine variety? Would it be a like? Are you happy to do a Shiraz in the middle of the day? I'm interested in this because there is a lunch coming up, and I'm wondering whether Shiraz is too heavy to go with a beef bourguignon in the middle of the day. Uh, I think I think you'd be fine. It just depends on where you buy it from. You know, if you had something from the Barossa, they're pretty big and rich and juicy. But something from Victoria is a little more like sort of medium bodied, you know, kind of spicy style, um, not as heavy. So I'd probably be inclined to go something like that or, or something from France as well. They tend to be, you know, a little lower alcohol, a little more sort of on the medium bodied side of things. So, I th- yeah, I totally think you're fine with that. Absolutely. All right. And just while I'm getting, um, while I'm self-serving myself here, um, any particular Victorian winery that you would suggest for the Shiraz? Um, yeah, I, I love that that um, Mount Langy Cliff Edge. It's a really fantastic one. I mean, they're such a great producer, really classic Victorian producer, but that's got all that lovely sort of soft, juicy, black sort of fruit and spice, but it's in a, in a more sort of medium-bodied style. Um, it's It's wonderful. I'm making notes for my next yeah. order for Prince Wine Store. And everybody, it's not that hard to do. You just jump on princewinestore.com.au. Oh, will you? Well, I'm wondering, I'm wondering if I'm invited, Miles. <laughs> Miles, Miss Jane's nailed it. She's just held up a card to me. It's like um, drinking toffee apples. Oh, yeah. Toffee. It's yeah, exactly very much what it so. is. Mm. So yeah. tell, tell us again the name and. So, um, so it's La Bielu. Yep. And it's an mm. apple chestnut liqueur. I'm just going to. Spell that as I take another sip. L E new word B I R L O U. Everyone, and this is it's a really good value because it's a seven hundred ml bottle for such a good price, produced in France. And Miles will look after you. And remember, use the promo code M E double S. That's short for Messenger in capital letters, or um, to. At checkout online to receive a listener discount for the wonderful wines at Prince Wine Store. And Corrie and Miles, that is a cocktail cabinet for Prince Wine Store, bringing wine enthusiasts the greatest wine in the world. Visit princewinestore.com.au and tell them that Corrie and Caro sent you. Thanks, Miles. Thank you. Okay, Corrie, let's move right on now to Crush of the Week, and you've got a wonderful nomination. Uh, I do, Caro. It's a crush slash valet to Carla Zampatti, our great uh, icon of Australian fashion who sadly died on the weekend. I did not know that she had taken a fall at the opera the week before. I did not know that she had hit her head badly and I didn't know that she was in a coma. And they've obviously, the family has 
concluded after a week that um, it was time to let her go. It was absolutely, it was a shock. I've spoken to fashion friends and so on. They had no, no one had any idea. So it was kept very quiet and private, which of course is a good thing. But I felt this was an opportunity, Caro, for us to just um, commend her extraordinary and long career. And I was lucky enough to interview Carla Zampatti uh, twice, once when I was a fledgling fashion journalist in 1984, when Carla was absolutely at the peak of her powers. And then it must have been the early 90s. Remember when George's was taken over by Terence Conran and Steve Bennett? Yep. And it was redone. I remember in Fleur McCarg's florist was on one side of the entrance to the old George's and the cafe was on the other. And I did a profile on Carla and we sat in that cafe for an hour and a half. She is, um, she's quite, uh, I don't know whether it's her nerves or um, she's a shy person or whatever. I found her quite aloof on both occasions, but she would warm up and she was incredibly generous toward colleagues, young people. She's been a great mentor to people in the fashion industry. And she just came to Australian fashion from Italy at the right time, Caro. You know, she started in the 60s um, making, you know, nice frocks for young girls. Um, She was caught up in the whole swinging 60s thing. And then in the 70s when women as they say, left the kitchen and went to the workplace, Carla started designing those power suits, which took her through the 80s. The 90s, she developed a leaner, more sort of recession kind of that whole, you know, how fashion in Australia had to adapt so quickly to just having, keeping it simple. She was able to do it. And I think probably that's in a way continued. She's been very much a designer in recent years of colour block, you know, simple, simple patterns, but very flattering. And what I love about her... Um, I'd also say Norma Tullo, Jane Lamerton, Adele Weiss. They have always known how how the Australian woman's body works. You know, we're bigger, we're yeah, more athletic. Her dresses athletic. always fit me whenever I go in, you know. With, she understands our bodies. Dare I say, did you wear Carla to your eldest daughter's wedding or was that Carla's daughter? That was Carla's daughter. Bianca Spender. Who has inherited her. dress. Yeah, and, but I did wear a Carla Zampatti to one of the wedding functions and I've worn it so many times since. I, I, look, I just think she's just a, an absolute um, star. She's right up there with Norma Tullo, Prue Acton, all of those, all of that gang, and um, it's a very sad loss. It is, and, and a, a terrible accident to fall down steps at any age. I I um I heard a speak at the National Gallery a few years ago, and it was really interesting. The fashion stuff. Um, she did make a comment about she was over, um, the over the look. I can't remember the line she used, but um, florals and you know something about florals or something, and the entire room was full of women in floral flocks. So that was pretty floral frocks. That was pretty funny, but. There wasn't a lot of great stories about, you know, the fashion industry being in Sydney and Melbourne across the 70s and 80s and all the excitement and gossip. And as someone said to me, he was so hardworking. He barely drank. He was, you know, he wasn't someone who would have been there at 3am, you know, holding up the bar at the Ivy or those sort of things because he was never that sort of person. Hardworking. And I think if you survive in Australian fashion for four plus decades, it's pretty remarkable. Just a a brilliant designer. Brilliant designer. Caro, we're off to BSF now and uh, we would like to say thank you to Red Energy. who were just our wonderful sponsors and we thank you so much for your support of our podcast. I'm going to kick it off with a book. 
Now, I'm really surprised that you and your mother, Julia, have not discovered this Nancy Spain book. Uh, I'm gonna, in fact, I'm going to give it to you. I'm going, you're going to have this copy after I finish with it. Oh, it's called thank you. Why I'm Not a Millionaire, The Dazzling Memoir of an Extraordinary Trailblazer by Nancy Spain. Now, this book, Caro, was first published in 1980, uh, 1956, and it is the, I would say, warm and witty memoir of Nancy Spain, who was a British broadcaster, writer, she wrote a few potboiler kind of detective novels. Have you ever read her novels? No, I've heard of her, but I've never read her, I don't think. She was born in 1917, just as World War One came to a close, and she died tragically in 1964 in an aeroplane accident. She was actually flying to the Aintree race course to cover the Grand National, the 1964 Grand National horse race, because she was a sports writer, among everything else. And the plane crashed, sadly, near the race course, and everybody on board died. But boy, did she have an amazing life. She was eccentric. She was smart. Um, she lived a kind of life, what people at the time might describe as a bohemian lifestyle. She lived openly with her lover, Joan Werner-Laurie, who was the editor of She magazine. And they lived there with their children, lived in a house, I think Hampstead from memory, but they lived together for years and years. She was born in Newcastle upon time. The youngest of two daughters. Her father was one of those um, retired lieutenant colonels. He had a horror of pretension and people who drop in. And dinner parties uh, were, um, were sent him into a tiz because he always worried whether there would be enough cutlets to go around. Um, most extraordinary and ex- eccentric family. She, Nancy and her sister were sent to a boarding school at an early age like bring on St Trinians, it, the tales of fun and games there. And that's, of course, when she discovered her sexuality, I think, and her attraction to um, older, um, you know, taller, horsier, sporty women. But she became a journalist, Cara, because she was in the lo- local lacrosse team and she um, rang the editor of the local Newcastle paper and said, you should really be covering this sport. Like, our team is doing better and better. We're going into the nationals and everything. He said, well, write us a few paragraphs. So she wrote this most eloquent sports report. He got rid of every adjective, as you can imagine. But she was suddenly on her way. And she became, um, she became, as I said, um, a, a columnist. She was on uh, BBC shows like um, what's my line? Do you remember? Yep, all those old ones. And how um, old was she when she was killed? Well, so she was she was in her fifties. Uh, so she was born in nineteen seventeen, died in nineteen sixty four. So uh, fifty uh, nineteen sixty four. So that must be I can't do my sums, but she must have been fifty or forty eight or something. And this is her autobiography. This is her memoir. So this was published about eight years before she died. And But she talks about her great friendships with Noel Coward, Marlene Dietrich, Lord Beaverbrook, Orson Welles, heaps and heaps of old BBC executives, old lovies of the English stage. I just think it has Julia Wilson written all over it. Brilliant. <laughs> and she writes like an absolute dream. You and just, why isn't she a millionaire? Well, she says she's not a millionaire. It's quite funny that you ask that, Caro. That's very good. She, said, she says um, in this memoir... Obviously, I'm not a millionaire because I have never saved. I have only invested over and over again in selfishness, buying myself a holiday when I needed one or a typewriter. Often I've avoided doing something I didn't want to do in spite of the large sums involved. The horror of climbing drain pipes in Brussels and spying on Peter Townsend. No, I thought it just isn't worth it. And of course, that was uh, that alludes to her $47,000 offer by an American newspaper 
proprietor to just cover the Peter Townsend Princess Margaret affair from woe to go. Because of said, course he was sent to Belgium, yes, wasn't he? Right. That's right. Oh, that sounds great. So Marie. she's great. I think you'll really love exploring her. We have um, Why I'm Not a Millionaire, this new, this latest edition with Nancy sitting on the top of her sports car uh, in the bookshop. It is only twenty four ninety nine, and it's actually a perfect book for Mother's Day, Caro. Now, what is your screen? Well, my screen is something I've watched on the television. I was hoping to go and see uh, Benedict Cumberbatch in The Courier. Never got around to it because Easter was so busy, but I'll hopefully come back to you next week with that. But this is something we've really been enjoying on BBC First. It's called 15 Days. Have you come across it? Haven't. It's a Welsh farmhouse murder mystery. Now, have Whoa. I got you in? You've, I got got me, you in? you've got me at the Welsh. There was a great review about a month ago in the Weekend Australian by our friend, well, friend of the podcast, Graham Blundell. He is our friend. Who, who, you know, got us into watching this. He did a really interesting review of um, the um, Amazon Prime series um, that, have, I mean, I think four to six AFL clubs took part in last year. He wrote about that on the weekend, and I can urge you to watch that as well. I um, think you wrote about that too, didn't you? Oh, was, yeah, I did. I did. Mine was slightly, <laughs> probably focusing on more of the negative than his, but um, that's the no, way No, he we did roll. give it a great review. 15 Days, what did you say it was on? It's on BBC First, Foxtel. Now, this has got the, the most recognisable face I knew was David Caves, who is... Um, one of the um, one of the main characters in Prime Suspect, the tall dark chap in Prime Suspect, um, it is just it starts with a murder, a young member, a family. You find out as the days go on. It starts with the fifteenth day and goes back to the first day, but um, one family member is murdered brutally. You're assuming by a member of his own family. That's how it starts. He's there with his partner. You don't know if it's his wife. And there is a newborn baby. And there is a murder. And then we go back to the beginning, which is a family convening at this Welsh farmhouse following the death of their mother. There are some... Also, everybody's sort of flown in for the event. Well, and and you don't know. Some get there on time. Some you don't think are going to come. Some do come. Sounds like my Easter. There's an... (laughs) Hopefully there wasn't a murder. There's a very evil cousin, sort of you're not sure about uncle. Um, David Caves, who plays a brother-in-law... Um, of one of the sisters in the family is a serious, serious bad egg. And there's a will and there is a revelation when the will is read out. It is just, look, it's a really good thriller. You don't quite know. The fact that you know who's going to die at the beginning is quite interesting. Mm-hmm. But th- there's diaries. There's um, The father died in interesting, mysterious circumstances some years before. There was a sibling who died at a very, very young age. Um, one... One brother who's come to the house because he's intent on developing the family farm and has a plan with his new partner who has no idea about the family history. They're really interesting. I really recommend it. 15 days on BBC First. That's a bit like me um, tuning into the highly acclaimed SBS series, The Bureau, and watching the last episode first, thinking that we were watching the first episode because oh. <laughs> the way <laughs> our television works. That was the, I've seen, is that the French one? Well, that would have been a debacle. It's well, hard enough to keep up with it anyway. And Pete said, oh, I think I think on one side sort of admitted our mistake. We were really going, gosh, the viewer has to work hard with this one. <laughs> we get to the end and I've gone, oh, bloody hell, look, we've, we've watched the last one first. And he said, well, I think we go back to the beginning. I went, are you kidding? We know everything that happens now. 
Well, I, I recommend... People still say that we should go back to the start of the Bureau. Well, you actually should. The first series is the best, actually. But 15 days, you do know at the beginning what happens, but you don't know why or how. And there's a Great. lot of red herrings and a lot of twists. Oh, sounds like fun. 15 days. Now, Corrie, you've been cooking and um, what you have cooked is going to go very nicely with the, as I call it now, toffee apple liqueur that yes. Miles brought in. Yes, it is. And uh, it's... Again, another yet another recipe from A Year of Simple Family Food by Julia Bazutal Nishimura, the Melbourne cook who people know also as Ostro, and that is her Instagram account. Um, Jane is going to put up the notes on uh, the recipe on the show notes, so I won't go into it, but it is spiced carrot cake, Caro, and like all carrot cakes, this one rocks for a couple of um, important reasons. The olive oil, of course, is always a winner in the... Um, in the carrot cake steaks. There's lots of ground cinnamon, lots of freshly grated nutmeg and lots of ground cardamom. I did not grate nutmeg because I couldn't find any, so I had to use it out of the bottle. That's no oh, problem. Oh, it's a killer grate. I've done that recently. Yeah. You've got to be very careful of your knuckles. <laughs> you well, I, could, I just couldn't find any to grate. So anyway, that was okay. We just went off to the spice rack. Uh, it has four carrots in it and 100 grams of walnuts. And this one um, you put in a 22-centimetre round cake tin and it serves eight to ten people, although probably more because it is quite rich. It's a perfect one, mums and dads, for kids' school lunches, can I just say, because this cake will keep for a long time. The cream cheese frosting is like the best, Carol. And the secret to this, apart from the icing sugar, unsalted butter and the cream cheese, is the finely grated zest of one lime. Oh, Julia. It's beautiful. It is, it is such a great taste. I Really, if you were making cakes, I'd be thinking about putting lime zest in everything. And there's a pinch of ground cinnamon in the icing as well. That is the Spiced Carrot Cake by Julia Bazutal Nishimura. And we will have the recipe and a picture of it on the show notes. And thank you. Red Energy for supporting our BSF segment. We love what you do. And if you want some good energy, call Red Energy on 131 806. Now, Ms. So Charlie's snapper obviously got the sack. Oh, oh, yeah, I did say I was going to do that, didn't I? Well, do you know the interesting thing about that was Charlie was busy in the kitchen for two hours. None of us paid any attention. I forgot I was going to put it on the podcast. Oh. And then we all just, you know, hoovered oh. it down. <laughs> Forgot to ask him for the recipe. It's a bit selfish. Well, that's all right. Maybe another week because it did sound nice. Now, you're grumpy. I'm grumpy. And look, I, I did mention this on Footy Classified, so I'm sorry for being a broken record, but it deserves a run around again. I'm really disappointed that the AFLW Grand Final, which is due to be played in the next sort of 10, 12 days, is not going to have a standalone time slot. I'm really disappointed that they didn't think ahead and maybe think to fixture it on a Thursday night. Imagine the ratings, imagine the eyeballs, as people say, if it had been a standalone fixture in a prime time slot. I'm I'm told by the AFL that working women, families, etc., would have found it difficult to convene on a Thursday night. I think they should have just been brave and done it anyway. As we speak, and so as we are going to press, as they say, Corrie, the AFL are meeting about when to fix you this final. They still don't know who's going to host. It's most likely going to be Adelaide or Brisbane, but it could be in Melbourne if Melbourne or Collingwood, if Melbourne and Collingwood both win their uh, preliminary finals. Carol, are they blaming disorganisation on COVID-related matters? Well, no, they just say it's difficult to do. They're not going to do it on a Friday night. It's too valuable on Channel 7. 
Thursday night, they've done a lot of Thursday night games and this particular Thursday night that we're talking about, which is in about 10 days' time, is the Revolt game, uh, Maddie Revolt, Maddie's Vision, which raises money for her particular the illness that killed her. And in fact, um, it's Richmond St Kilda. They're not going to change that now, the Thursday night game. But they didn't have, they should have thought ahead and given it that time slot. As it stands, there's every chance it'll go up against an AFL game between Sydney and GWS, Saturday twilight. I'm arguing that if Adelaide win, they'll finish top and they'll host at the Adelaide Oval. And I would put it on after the Crows game on Sunday week, which would be just a powerful statement, don't you think? Absolutely. What, say, a great, what a great day's telly that is. To say the men <clears throat> are a curtain raiser to the women. Anyway, um, I think we'll see a whole different AFLW season next year. They're thinking of starting the season going forward in November and giving the women pure clean air, as they say, because the minute the men's season started, the ratings more than halved. And before that, they were their best ever and the standards been great, et cetera, et cetera. So a lot going on with the women, but I'm grumpy that it looks like they are not going to get their own time slot. In fact, they definitely won't get their own time slot unless the AFL move other games around. Oh, goodness gracious. Well, keep, so that keep on that bandwagon for the next about, week. Corrie. Now, Caro, six quick questions for Red Energy. The ABC's decision to move Q&A program to the Q&A program to a Thursday night. Good call or bad call? <laughs> to borrow Dorothy Dixer. To borrow a line from a certain TV show. Bad call, destructive call, ridiculous call. Why did they do a call? It, the ratings have been really disappointing. I read an article about this in the Green Guide last week, which felt that um, the show itself has gone off a bit and sort of swallowed what its original intent was. I would dispute that. I've seen a couple of fantastic editions of Q&A this year, particularly the you know the one, the particular one that Samantha Maiden, who we've just discussed, was on, talking about these issues in Canberra. Um, I um, don't know why they moved it from Monday night. I mean, I've heard all the justifications, but Monday night was just a perfect fit. You know, you had Australian Story, Media Watch, Four Corners, and then Q&A. That was your fix and, and then, deep and diving then you, into And then the you issue. on Footy Classified. Well... You know, in your pretty little Scanlon outfit. I don't think it's actually hurt Footy Classified, by the way, that Q&A is no longer on. No, well, that's very decent of you to, to say it's, that. It was just a, opposition. a really bad decision. I, I, it's Monday night is a stay-at-home night and you want to get the agenda for the week ahead. Corrie, which international news story made you cry this week? Caro, the trial of Derek Chauvin, the man, the policeman accused of murdering George Floyd on May 25th last year. I don't know whether you've been watching any of this, the testimonies from the witnesses, but it has been extraordinarily emotional. The teenage girl who videoed the event, the white off-duty firefighter who was just beside themselves, a nine-year-old girl, the cashier in the store who allegedly took the forfeited $20 bill, knew it was forfeited, and then rang the police and said, there's a guy at the front who's just used a forfeited, a forfeit." Um, a counterfeit, you know, a $20 bill, which, of course, set things off. And then Charles McMullen, who was a bystander who uh, who just encouraged George Floyd to go quietly with the police, saying to him, you can't win. And, of course, George did go quietly and ended up on the ground. One of the most interesting things, Carol, just as an aside about this stuff that's come out, is 
that we were all told it was eight minutes and 46 seconds that Derek Chauvin's knee was on George Floyd's neck. It actually was nine minutes and 29 seconds. Anyway, watching this this week, I found myself in tears a couple of times. So that would be my um, sad story for the week. On to happier things. I haven't seen it, but I should watch it. Oh, well, I think it's a game changer for American race relations. Best Easter meal you enjoyed over the weekend? Well, two things, because they were things that had never been done before by my family, and I've just sent Miss Jane a couple of shots. Clementine made her first lemon tart, and it was delicious. And she actually stenciled Easter on top and then did the whole icing sugar thing. And and with vanilla bean ice cream, an absolute treat for putting on Sunday. And Brendan made his first beef and Guinness pie. Oh. Oh, it was... Admittedly, I bought the chuck steak, but that was and and I provided the stock. So where did he get the recipe from? He just looked it up on Mr. Google. I think it was one of those taste.com ones. He went and purchased the Guinness and it was delicious. The pastry worked out perfectly. I'm not sure he actually made the pastry from scratch, but the fact that he actually made the pie, he cooked up the beef casserole Guinnessy bit the night before. He made it the next day. So it was beautiful and tender and he'd slow cook or cooked it on the stove for about two hours. Absolutely delicious. Did he enjoy the process? He did. Good. He did. And he and he did it and like Clem with her Easter, Brendan did a little um I think it was a shamrock or a clover on the top of the pie, which he cut out himself. So they were my two favourite Easter meals. Corrie, whenever there is a COVID outbreak, what is the thing that most surprises you? Please don't say lavatory paper. The number of people who go to Bunnings when they have COVID. (laughs) When they have COVID. Yes, that's true, isn't it? But don't you always fight? Now, people are just saying when they're trekking where everyone goes, they go to the grog shop. And they might get their nails done or they might go to the news agency, but they always go to Bunnings. It's funny. They always go to Bunnings. It is funny. And then all the poor customers who have gone to Bunnings go into lockdown. And of course, the Bunnings media department goes into a tailspin. (laughs) (laughs) I shouldn't laugh about this, but it just strikes me as just, yep, there we are again. Um, Caro, what has happened in recent days to make you realise that winter is coming? Well, I'd like to say something to do with my garden or the the light or um, the feeling in the air or something to do with bird life. I've started looking at boots in shop windows. (laughs) I've just started looking. uh, You know, I I get this twitch. I reckon you have about about 11 pairs of boots in your cupboard. No. Oh, come on. I didn't buy any last year. You sound like my daughter, Francesca, when I say, don't you have enough dresses? Mum, I've got weddings. Yeah. It's it's true I have too many dresses. I will agree with that. But I haven't bought boots for several years and I just keep finding myself in shop sure? window. Well, I have I horrible... reckon you had a pre-COVID you bought a bit of a boot. Two years before, one year before, two years before COVID. I swear, I haven't bought boots for mm. three years. So I wore the same... And, you know, last year none of us really bought many clothes and I just was very we happy with my... We were buying leisure wear. With my previous pairs, yes, exactly. Um, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. But um, I have, as you know, very unusually tough... Uh, not tough... Bad calves for boots. <laughs> I, I can't fit into most boots, so I have to be very tough. selective. What 
tough as a ham hock. What, what do you mean you've got they're, – they're large and they, it's hard to fit into boots and I have to really look around. And I don't like ones that have that elasticised back or – anyway. I'm you know always, you can do gym exercises to make Corrie, your calves smaller. Corrie, I do all that. It, please. I, I lie on the bed. I've used plastic bags inside the boots. You put Jane, don't you, don't you start laughing. You wait if it ever happens to well, what, what do you mean you put bags on well, your feet? They slide in easier. How do you when get the you, bag off? Well, then it comes out. Oh, no, when you're trying them on in shops, they often, people give me plastic bags. Trust me. Or you walk around with plastic I bags. I lie on the bed. You know how when you were young, you used to lie on the ground flat and just make your jeans do up? Well, I'm lying on the bed with my leg in the air so that, you know, all the blood rushes out of my feet and my legs to make them slightly smaller. And then I say, I call out to Brendan and he has to zip them up. It's a Ooh, disaster. It's kinky. Anyway, it's not, it's actually not. Maybe he'd like it to be, but trust me, it's not. Corey. Who are Ginger and Carmen and why do you want to be their friends? (laughs) You sure it's not Ginger and Smart, the fashion label? Ginger and Carmen launched an Instagram account in 2019. They are Melbourne Funsters, Caro. This is what our Don't Shoot Pod Instagram account should be like. What a fun! These are two women who are possibly around our age. I'm sorry, Ginger and Carmen, if you're younger. I've done you a huge disservice. They have great fashion sense. They're fashion gurus and they love all the music that we love, new romantic stuff. They go right back to the 80s, Um, you know, Duran Duran, whatever it is that they're playing, I'm rocking (laughs) along. They are so cool. Who are they? So I put this on our book club Insta. Uh, WhatsApp the other night. I don't know whether you saw it. You were probably too is, busy. Is that the name of the podcast, Ginger and no, Carmen? No, no, it's not a, It's not a podcast. It's an Instagram account, Ginger and Carmen with a C. Carmen and Ginger. Oh, Carmen and Ginger. Oh, thanks, Jane. Sorry, Carmen and Ginger. And um, I don't know how I got onto them, but I'm just absolutely addicted to them. But they are really stylish women and they um, – do we know what they rock look the like? vintage. Yeah, go and have a look now. You can see them. They're I so am cool. Looking it up now. But they could be us, or we could be them. Actually, sorry, we could be them if we just grooved up our style a bit and started doing our own selfies. Well, I think we're fun enough and groovy enough. <laughs> we're not Ginger and Carmen or Carmen oh, okay. and Ginger. All right. Can you see them? Aren't they great? I love them. Anyway, that's it. So, And that's it for the show. So if you want to see Carmen and Ginger, that's all one word on Instagram. Carol, it's been a lovely... Oh, here they are. Oh, yes. Oh, I love those red gumboots. See? Yeah. I knew you'd love them. Anyway, what I was going to say is I put it on the book book, cl- uh, book club uh, WhatsApp the other night saying, does anybody know them? And, of course, Gina Ferguson did. <laughs> the oh, style, the former fashion goddess photographer extraordinaire she knew who they were but I, I want to actually know who they are who I'm are these people I'm still not seeing what they look like I'm just seeing all their gear and if their you need, if you and know their... Carmen and Ginger could we please meet them we'd love to meet them Caro and Miss Jane thank you Miss Jane for all your help that was just such a lovely episode to catch up after Easter Red Energy thank you for your support and of course thank you to Prince Wine Store and to Miles for coming in again today you can contact Don't Shoot the Messenger via Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and you can hit the sign up button on the Facebook and you can then on our Facebook page and you can then uh, read all of our show notes or if that's, you're having trouble with that just send us an email and we'll subscribe you and our email is feedback at don't shoot pod 
feedback.com.au. We love feedback. We love brickbats. We love bouquets. We love being told how fabulous we are or, in fact, when we muck something up. Please let us know. And don't forget, of course, our film night on the 22nd of April at 5.30 for a 6 o'clock screening at the Palace Cinema at Como in South Yarra. Drinks beforehand, drinks afterwards. We'll be there. And what fun that will be. So just if you want to join that, just again going to feedback at don'tshootpod.com.au and Miss Jane will tell you how to buy tickets. And Caro, what do we say? Don't shoot the messenger. Hi, it's producer Jane here. And if you've enjoyed the Don't Shoot the Messenger podcast with Caroline Wilson and Corey Perkin, perhaps you'd like to subscribe to another couple of podcasts proudly supported by Red Energy. Yes, Red Energy also bring you Homestyle with Shana Blaze and Under the Hammer with Stav from O'Brien Real Estate. It's all part of the Red Energy podcast lifestyle series. You can subscribe now wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thanks to Red Energy, most satisfied customers 11 years in a row. That's Red Energy.